Good morning. Good morning. It's such a joy to be here with you and be able to open God's Word. And um, my family and I are just uh, we're just so so thankful for this church and for each of you. And um, it's been our home for um, five years and, and since its beginning, and uh, we're very very thankful. Um, this uh, journey to Albania, we didn't know it was to Albania, but it began began many years ago, but um, for our family, it began 10 years ago, and um, we're, just, we're just so grateful um, to be sent by uh, Christ Bible Church, and um, we just are thankful to be here. As you open to Psalm 2, we'll be in Psalm 2 this morning, um, the nations are heavily on our minds and our hearts these days. Um, we're moving from one nation to another nation. And it's important to understand what is God's relationship to the nations and what is the, are the nations' relationship to God. And that's what we'll be looking at today. Also, since Pastor Patrick two weeks ago went through Psalm 1, Psalm 2 is a fitting psalm to go through next and um, I'll leave it to the other leaders and Pastor Patrick to go through the rest of the Psalms uh, after, uh, after Psalm 2. But these two Psalms um, were, were probably combined into one Psalm. There's a lot of arguments that, that say they were, there may be one unit uh, as an introduction to the entire Psalter, the entire rest of the 42 Psalms. And there are a number of factors um, but two of them I want you to see, if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 2, if you look up to Psalm 1, and where it says Psalm 1-1, it says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then it goes on. So how, how blessed is the man. In Psalm 2, verse 12, at the very, very end, it says, How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Psalm 1 identifies the blessed man by what? He does, and what he does not do. The, the blessed person in Psalm 2 is one who takes the refuge in God. Second, both of these psalms are connected by the words way, the way, and perish. So look at this in, in Psalm 1, verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then in Psalm 2, verse 12, do homage to the Son that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. So you see that connection. If you want to know how to be blessed and happy at the same time, know how not to perish in both this life and the next life, you'll heed the instruction in these two Psalms and then the rest of the Psalter. And you'll see as we go through Psalm 2, there are a lot of themes, a lot of um, framework that's provided in this psalm and Psalm 1 for all the rest of the psalms. So before we dive into Psalm 2, I'd like to tell you a short story, a very short story, but about a king, a king, a very, very powerful ruler. Uh, this ruler had power over the whole known world at his time, during his time. In fact, this is what he says about himself, and he was telling the truth. He said that I am the king to all peoples, nations, and men of every language, every language that live on the earth. 
He had peace, power, opulence. He could have anything that he wanted at any time. But there's a big problem because he was a prideful and arrogant man. And this pride and arrogance was so great, it got God's attention. And God, in his kindness, got this king's attention. And he sent him a nightmare. Have you ever had a nightmare before? Okay, our kids sometimes have nightmares. There's some kids that have night terrors, right? They can't even, like, they're just screaming, and you think they're awake. You don't know what's going on. Well, this king had a terrifying nightmare. It was terrifying. And all the money he had couldn't buy an answer to what this nightmare meant. But God, again, in his kindness, sent his prophet to explain this nightmare to him. And this was the explanation of the nightmare. O king, you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. You'll be drenched with the dew of heaven until seven years pass. You're going to be living as cattle, like a, like a cow, for seven years. Until you recognize that the Most High is the ruler of the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. The prophet even pleaded with the king. So did the king repent and turn? No. Did he repent that week? No. Did he turn from his arrogance against God that month? No. That six months later? No. Twelve months later, an entire year later, he was on his palace on, on the patio of his palace, looking at everything, and he was saying in his heart, look at everything I've done. I'm awesome. He's been saying that for the last 12 months after he got this terrifying warning. And at that moment, God turned his mind to the mind of a cow. Can you imagine? So this king is there in his robe, royal robe, his crown on his head, attendants all around him, and all of a sudden... He's a cow, right? What does he do? Throws it off, runs out, runs down, finds grass, finds some pasture, jumps into the grass and just starts eating grass. Can you imagine what his attendants thought? Can you imagine what the, the, the chiefs of, of war, these guys, you know, they're ready to go to battle and they're like, what is happening? And they run out and they're like, oh, king, I don't know what's happening, but come on, we'll get you, we'll take care of you. And he probably tried to chase him away, right? Try to bite him. Get away from my grass. Get out of my field. This is my pasture. Seven years, they couldn't bring sense into him until, until his heart finally submitted to God, until he was finally soft towards God, and he humbled himself before God. He saw his place before God. And then God gave him his mind back and restored his kingdom to him. This is a very similar scenario that we find today in Psalm 2. That story is, was a true story from King Nebuchadnezzar. You can read the whole story in Daniel 4. It's a lot interesting than I told it to you, but um, Daniel 4. But today in Psalm 2, we're going to see the state of the nations. This is the current state of the nations. So please read Psalm 2 with me. Please read Psalm 2. 
Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who is in heaven, he who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with an rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Therefore, O kings, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry with you, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Please pray with me. Lord, we come before you today, and Lord, I, I pray that each of us today would take refuge in you, that we would turn to you today for salvation. We would turn to you for, for help from our sins, salvation from our sins, rescue from death. Lord, please, Change our hearts from hearts of rebellion to hearts of worship and submission. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, the, the foolish path that was spoken about in Psalm 1 is taken by the nations. The nations have walked down this foolish path. And it's not just the kings, but it's all the peoples. And it is the kings, the rulers. Everyone is on this, this foolish path. The same path that we spoke about that Nebuchadnezzar had taken. God in his mercy, he will not allow people and nations and kings to simply perish. He won't allow them to do that. He could, right? He could. He could let them just perish. That is where the end will take them. Because it's great sin and great rebellion against God. Instead, he installed his son as savior of the nations, also as judge of the nations. And so we'll see this today. One scholar has put it this way. Psalm 2 denies the apparent meaninglessness of history. At the center of history no longer is the struggle of great world powers for existence but God, whose relationship with the earthly powers will determine their destiny. This is an amazing psalm. Um, many sermons could be actually preached from this psalm and about this psalm. Um, we're just preaching one today. Um, and it's actually quoted many times in the rest of the scriptures. So we'll, we'll touch on some of these other passages, um, but this is a very, very full text. It's split into four parts. And so today, we're going to see from Psalm 1, we're going to see four reminders, four reminders that God is the ruler of the nations. He is the ruler of the nations. 
The first reminder is found in verses 1 through 3. The nations are in rebellion. That's the first reminder that God is, in, is the ruler. How could they be in rebellion if he's not the ruler, right? He is the ruler, and they are rebelling against him. And we see this in verses 1 through 3. So why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Then the narrator here, he asks this question. It's a rhetorical question. It's something that's actually happening. Why are they doing this? This is, this is vain. What, what, what are they doing? They're, they're in an uproar. They're taking their stand and they're counseling together against God and against his anointed. This text shows the natural state of the nations. The nations are not neutral. Have you ever thought of that? That people will say that, oh, people are basically good. The nations are basically good, trying to do what's right. Really, that's not what God says. God says that the nations are in rebellion towards him. This is a description of their normal, natural behavior. They're in rebellion against God and against his anointed one. And it's everyone. It's the nations. This text says nations, peoples, kings, rulers. Is God outnumbered? There's a lot of people, a lot of rulers. And then against God and his anointed, just the two of them? Well, no, it's kind of like, um, as we're preparing to move right now, we, we've never had ants. We have little ants, these little fruit ants in our kitchen. And, you know, you, you kill them, and they keep coming back, and you keep killing them. And you look and you say, wow, if these ants wanted to kind of, you know, if they wanted to rebel against me, right? They, okay, they could try, you know, they could chase me around the house. That's not that big of a deal. Now, if we were in like Amazon and they're army ants, that'd be a bigger deal, right? You'd like, you want to run from them. And now, what about an ant, even an army ant, and all of his friends? And they say, you know what? We want to rebel against the sun. We're going to take it out. We're going to take the sun out. We're going to do it. If we don't like how it shines in our eyes, we're going to destroy the sun. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? It, it, that's foolishness, isn't it? How can an ant take out the sun? How can a bunch of ants take out the sun? They can't. It's ludicrous. That's the type of picture, except this is way, way worse. This is of greater magnitude than even that. This is the God of the universe, God of all creation. The God that has given breath and life to each person, to the people that are rebellion, rebellion using their breath to, to um, arrogantly go against God. God's given them that breath. He's given them the ability to rebel. Isn't that amazing? Who made the peoples of the earth? God did. Who do they belong to? They belong to God. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Right? Male and female created them. God says that in Genesis 1.27. So who made the nations? In Acts 17, we're told by Paul on his first missionary journey, Paul is explaining at Athens, which will be eight hours from our house if you want to come and visit us, just so you know. Um, Paul is explaining at Athens, and he's trying to tell these folks about God. And look at what he says. And this is, this is uh, Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. That's an amazing promise, right? We're moving right now. If you are living somewhere, God has appointed you that place to live. You know that? It says it right here. And why has he done this? That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. God gives you the ability to live, move, and exist. In this text, the nations are roaring. They're devising a vain thing against God and against his anointed. This is a premeditated. Um, this is premeditated. That same word there uh, that you see where it says, in, in, if you look at Psalm 1, 2, verse 2, it says, the righteous man meditates in his law day and night. That's what the nations are doing. That same word's used. They're not meditating in God's word, though. They're meditating against God and rebellion against God. And the anointed. Who is the anointed? The same, the same word um, is used. Not only is this talking about a physical king and the physical king of the Davidic kingdom, but this same word is used in in Daniel, in, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, where it talks about the Messiah, the prince, and the Messiah will be cut off. The Messiah, Jesus, who came and w- was going to come and die for our sins and who now has come and died for our sins. Same word. So this is the Messiah. So can you imagine the nations in an uproar? Um, did anybody here live through the Cuban Missile Crisis? Anybody remember that? Okay, if you if you think back, this might be a little history, but um, the Cuban Missile Crisis it was it was we thought we were going to be attacked, right? Um, it was a real threat. Uh, nuclear weapons were being placed in Cuba, and the Pentagon was going crazy. You can imagine you can imagine what that was like in Russia. Folks were going crazy, right? Can you imagine if that was happening in every single country and every nation in the world? But it's all against God. That's the picture that we have here. That's the picture. But it's actually a vain thing because it's ultimate foolishness, isn't it? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And what can they do against God? What can they do against him? They're declaring war against God. That's that's this word against. This is is a war term. They're saying, I'm against God. Can you imagine a king that could not speak? Can you imagine? Um, in World War, during World War II, um, King George VI had a bad speech impediment. He couldn't speak. He had a big problem. Can you imagine if a king can't speak, if he can't give an edict, if he, um, even when we think of the rulers in our day, if they couldn't, if they couldn't send a message, if they couldn't send a, uh, a message, if they, couldn't, if they couldn't make an announcement, if they couldn't make a proclamation, kings naturally speak, don't they? They naturally make, make um, words come to pass because they say something and it happens. What words are these kings saying? These kings are saying, we are going to tear their fetters apart. The fetters, that, that's the, 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 they see God's rule as a prison. We're going to break his chains. We're under his, his, we're in prison. We're his prisoners. 
Is that true? No, that's a lie. It's a lie. Every good thing comes from God. And they're saying, no, this is a prison. And they're saying, we're, we're going to cast off their cords from us. We're gonna, it's, it's like yoke uh, that oxen had that they would pull. And we're going to tear this off. We're not going to work for him anymore. What has he done for us? They're saying that with the breath that God gave them. They're saying that. What has he done? We're going to tear this off. This is depicted as, as just speech, right? Just words. But this speech and words, um, they, it's not weapons against God. It's not here, it's not weapons. It will become weapons in the future. In Revelation 19 and 20, we will we'll see in the future that, that the nations will rise against Jesus. They will raise weapons. And out of the sword of his mouth, he's going to strike down the nations. And at that time, he will, he will bring in his kingdom. He will balance Satan for a thousand years. He'll rule on this earth in peace. And then Satan will be unleashed again. And at that time, he'll deceive the nations again. And the final battle of earth will happen. And at that time, um, they won't even fight. At that time, fire from heaven will consume all of the nations. And that will be the final answer to the rebellion. Well, that final answer will actually be they will, they will spend eternity in hell, suffering, paying for their sin that can't be paid for. So... This is not um, just for nations. I mean, they had a major problem with God's authority, right? With his name, with his character. But every nation, this, this guy Mays, he, he says this, every nation, people group, and organization that possesses and uses power autonomously, autonomously, independent of the rule of the Lord, is theologically in rebellion. They are under the wrath of God, the divine seal for their for his own rule. So an application of this is, where are you before God? Did you understand that your sin is also rebellion against God? Even those little sins, the little rebellion, the little white lies, the little, this is rebellion against God. It's not the way that he has set up life. It's against him and against his authority. And it happens all the time. It's happened since Genesis um, when the fall of man happened. And we sin now by nature. We're naturally born in sin. We also sin because we choose to sin. So, as we've seen, this, this conspiring planning against God is ludicrous because it's against God. So we've seen in verses 1 through 3 that the nations are not neutral towards God. Now we're going to see in verses three, 4 through 6 that God is also not neutral towards the nations. This is the second reminder. First, the nations have rebelled against God. Second, God has responded to the nations. He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God reigns as king. Now, do you see the contrast here? The nations are scurrying. They're in consultation together. They're, they're rising up. They're standing. They're coming against God. What is God doing? Is he worried about this? No, he's sitting. He's sitting. What does the king do? The king sits, right, on his throne. He's hearing what his subjects are saying, and he mocks them. 
he laughs at them. Now, it's kind of hard, I think, for us to, to think of this. Um, one translation says he even makes sport of them. He's, he's making fun of them. Well, this, this idea of laughing um, is also found in Psalm 37, verse 12, also in Psalm 59, verse 8. It's hard to read this passage without thinking of in human terms, right? It's, it's hard because when we think of uh, laughing, jesting, scoffing, speaking in anger, or having fury, if you and I were to do that, we would probably be in sin, right? We probably would be. But this is God. God is able to perfectly respond in these ways to his enemies, but without sin, perfectly according to his character. So when we read this, this is a a just response. And looking at the next verse, God actually speaks back to the nations. And what does he say? He says, but for me, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In the original language, verse 3, the kings speak five words. And then God, in response here, speaks five words back. Five words back. It's a direct response. The nations and the kings of the earth, they have an authority problem. What's God's answer? He gives them more authority. He gives them a physical representation of his authority on earth. His son. His son. His own king. The Lord neither negotiates with rebels. This is what one commentator says. He doesn't negotiate with terrorists, right? He doesn't negotiate with rebels nor adjusts himself to suit their demands. He simply reaffirms his royal plan. This is his plan from the beginning. He simply is sitting. He restates his plan. Do you understand God's anger towards your sin, towards your rebellion, towards him? I mean, are the same rebellions in in each of our hearts? If you have not come to Christ, this is is the, the same rebellion. If we have come to Christ... This is something that we need to submit to him, that we need to recognize our sin and recognize that, that man, every time we sin, it's, it's in direct rebellion to God. It's in direct rebellion. So the third reminder that God gives us is in the next passages, verses 7 through 9. First, we've looked at God responding in in. in to the nations. Well, first, the nations rebel, he responds, and then here, he establishes his king. This is a very interesting, this is very interesting. He responds by establishing his king. Now, you're going to notice a change in the tone here. So listen for the change. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. You see that change in 2 verse 7, where it's changing to first-person verbs? So in verses 1 through 6, we have the psalmist. David is the one that is, is narrating, and he gives us the exact words of the kings and God within that narration. Now here in verse 7 through 9, this is God's son. This is the king himself speaking what God has proclaimed about him. In verses 10 through 12, the narrator, the psalmist David, will pick up again. 
But this, this section is a very important section. This is, this is um, what many scholars think is a, just a reiteration of the Davidic covenant. It is, but it is way more than that. Even the Davidic covenant was way more than the Davidic covenant. So let me just read from the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel verse 7. 2 Samuel verse 7. Oh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 12. This is God speaking to David, making his covenant with him that he's going to have a king on the throne. Um, and listen to what he says. David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I, okay, so who did that? Solomon did that, right? He built a house for, in God's, for God's name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a long time, isn't it? Forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, and I removed, it from bef I removed him before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure, therefore, before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever forever. So if you know anything about the Davidic kingdom and about kings in Israel, is there a king in Israel right now? No. There hasn't been a king in Israel since 586 BC. There hasn't been. So what happened? What happened? Well, this was also a foreshadowing of the king, the, the true Davidic king to come, the perfect king to come. Jesus, it foreshadowed him, the divine God-man. Verse 2, verse 7 in our text, where it says, He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's not recorded in the Old Testament as being said of any other Davidic king. But it is and was said of Jesus. In John 1, 8, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Also in that, that phrase, you are my son, that is repeated at Jesus' baptism, at his transfiguration. It's also in use, uh, reference to his resurrection. And that's in, in Acts, Acts chapter 13. Acts 13 Verse 30, 32 and 33. We preach to you the good news, the promise made from the fathers, that God has fulfilled his promise to our children, that he has raised up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he has raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So this is confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king. He is the king, God's king. When God says, my king, this is his king. We're given the inside scoop. This is, this is exactly what God said to Jesus. And, and we're, this, it's disclosed for us. This is, this is 
this is holy ground. This is, this is amazing to get to see this. We don't see this again this clearly until the Gospels when Jesus is on earth and he's, he's able to have conversations through prayer with God the Father. Just see here where it says, ask of me, ask of me. Now, this is not an, a song. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this song as a song, but I have, and uh, it's sometimes sung at mission gatherings, and it's sung like this. I'm not going to sing it, but it says, Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. Now, they stop there, because the rest of the verse goes like this. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Okay, so they stop. They stop. So this doesn't directly apply to missions. It directly applies to the king, the true king, to the son of God. And what does he say? God tells him to ask. Even Jesus prayed, right? We're to pray. We're to ask God for help. We're to pray. And this is something that he is to ask. If he didn't ask, it wouldn't be given to him. It's amazing, right? So we need to ask of God. We need to ask Him um, for help. We need to ask Him to even rule and reign. We need to ask Him to rule and reign in our lives out. This also um, is a reminder, um, well, it's, it's foreshadowing the authority that's being given to Jesus. In Matthew 28, 18, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And that's, that's Jesus coming. He came to save, right? He will come again to, to judge. He is Savior and judge. Savior and judge. And that's how it is with a king, isn't it? If you're a part of the king's kingdom, then as he goes and conquers another kingdom or as he fights against an enemy, you're, you're saved, right? Or if an enemy comes against, he's going to protect, right? Now, if you're an enemy of the king, then it's the opposite, isn't it? He's your judge. And Jesus functions as both. Break them with a rod of iron. This, this word rod is the same word that's used in Psalm 23, where it says, with my rod and my staff, um, he comforts me. But this is a rod of iron, of iron. It's a rod that shatters like earthenware. Um, this last summer, we saw some American Indian ruins that are uh, over a 1,000 years old. And there, were, there was just pottery everywhere, just all this pottery everywhere. And that's kind of the picture here, except that the picture is more of a, it, it, the words are more of like a pulverization. This is irreparable brokenness. They'll be shattered. Currently, there are about 197 nations in, in the world, it, just in case you want to visit them. You only have 196 more to go, okay? So just so you know. Um, these nations, they represent tremendous wealth and power, don't they? They seem permanent. They seem permanent. But God likens them to shattered pottery. In Isaiah 40, verse 15, he says that they're like one drop falling out of a, a, a bucket. We had rain recently, right? A few days ago. One drop of rain is what they're like. One speck of dust on the scales is what it says. In Psalm 110, 
This is kind of a parallel psalm to Psalm 2. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. And then in verse 6, 110 verse 6, it says, well, verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. He will be fine, but they will not be fine because they had not submitted to him. They're still in arrogance against him. So God gives authority to his king as savior and judge. This is the question for us today. Is Jesus your savior today or is he your judge today? If you were to die and stand before him today, would he be your savior or your judge? The promise for believers, for those that have turned to Christ and submitted to him, are great, and one of them is found in Revelation 2, verse 26, when Jesus himself is speaking to the church at Thyatira, one of the seven churches, he quotes our passage. He says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. So, that same authority Jesus is going to share with those that belong to him. We will belong to him and we will be his subject. We will do what he says and we'll even have, we'll even rule over the nations, it says there. That's a great promise for God's children. This brings us to the, the last reminder. The nations must repent or perish. These are the two choices that each of us have. The nations as a whole have as well. So verse 10 now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage or kiss the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So there's a connection here in the New Testament when Jesus, um, we're told in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he sent his son, right, to save the world. But if you don't turn to him, you will be condemned. Or in 2 Peter chapter 3, where it's talking about God is going to come and judge the world. Why hasn't he judged the world right now? Why hasn't he? Well, because he's, he's having patience. He's restraining his wrath against our sin until, until each person who is to come would come. And he wants you to come to him today and turn to him today in submission to him. And God is so kind. In verse 10, he, he, gives, he gives five clear warnings of instruction. These are commands. These are commands. Now, when we're given commands in Scripture, they can be obeyed and they must be obeyed. But when we see a command, sometimes, you know, you see the Ten Commandments, you see... The, they can be okay, obeyed, absolutely, through God's strength. They absolutely can be obeyed. 
So that's, that, these are the commands that are given. These can be obeyed and must be obeyed. First, be wise, O kings. Show discernment. Show discernment. Consider this. Don't, don't consult together against God. That is ultimate foolishness. Instead, show discernment. Be warned. Be warned. How foolish it would be warned and not heed the warning. In Albania, if you're driving down the street, there are these signs that if you see this and driving in Albania, you need to be warned because it's a circle, a red circle, it has blue, and then there's a red line like this across the middle. If you see that and you're driving, it means you're going the wrong way. You're driving the wrong way on the street. Uh, and so if you see that and you keep driving, in Albania, they, they don't mess around. They just put you in prison. They say, you must not be competent to drive. You're driving the wrong way. And we put all these warnings. And so now you need to go to jail. So this is worse than jail time, isn't it? If these kings and if we don't repent and turn to God, we will perish. Or to serve the Lord with reverence, really with fear. Not like Pharaoh. Do you remember what Pharaoh said to Moses in Exodus 5? This is what Pharaoh said. Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and they said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Well... Ten plagues later, he knew the Lord, didn't he? He knew the Lord. And he still had a hard heart against God. He still did not repent and turn to God after ten plagues. That will happen at the end of the ages. The nations will also have plagues brought on them. And these plagues are to, for judgment of their sin, of our sin. And they're meant to draw them to God for them to turn from their sin. But what will happen? It's already said that they're going to get harder and harder in their hearts against God. But no, that's not the, the case. We're to be wise. We're to be warned. We're to serve the Lord with reverence. We're to rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. The picture of, do you remember Belshazzar and Daniel where um, he's partying? He has this powerful king and he's partying and he's partying and it's a horrible party and and what is he partying with he's using the actual implements that were meant to worship god from the temple he kept them they kept them and he was partying with them and what happened that's where we get the term writing on the wall it's written on the wall this finger appears his hand appears and starts writing on the wall and it's his judgment against him that night he was removed as king he was gone he was executed he, he, was, he didn't know that that was going to happen. But that moment, it happened. He was not rejoicing with trembling with God. He didn't have the right relationship with God. But we are to. We're to rejoice with fear and trembling before him. Not, we can't just come before his presence and do whatever we want. We come to worship him, to, to worship him, to, to um, also bring homage to him. To, it says, kiss the son. That was an act of submission. And in that time, um, there actually is, you can see this picture of, um, and, the, and the Assyrians kept a record of this because they were so proud of it. Um, one of the Jewish kings is, is on his face, King Jehu, kissing the feet of the Assyrian king. And what was he doing? He was saying, 
He was saying, I'm your subject. I'm giving homage to you. I, what, I belong to you. Like, whatever you say, you're, you're over my kingdom. That's, that's what this command is. This word son, it's in verse 12. It's different than that word son in verse 7. We don't see that in our English text. But in verse 7, it's in Hebrew. Here, it's in Aramaic. So that's interesting. It, this, this truly is for the nations. It's truly for the nations. That would have um, really um, piqued their ears. Um, it should pique their ears. It should pique our ears. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. His, his patience is not going to last forever. It is going to come to an end. And so this is the day of salvation. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What a promise that is. What a promise. What a promise. Are we to take refuge in the government or in wealth or in power or in ourselves? No, we're to take refuge in God. Just like running into the gates, the gates of, of a city to be safe, the gates of his kingdom. That's what we're to do. We're to do that through repentance, turning from our sin. We're to do it through submitting ourselves to Christ, through trusting in him alone for salvation. And then take, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. Every day, denying our cross, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, take up our cross, follow him. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him. Every day, every day. That should just be the pattern of our lives because we belong to him now. We're under his authority. So, have you found refuge and taken refuge in the Son? Have you submitted to him? His wrath may soon be kindled. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day of salvation. And those who do not know Christ, who you know, who you're friends with, they need to know him. You need to plead that they know him, that they repent, that they turn from their sin, that they take refuge in him. He is the only safe refuge. Need rebellion be final? No, there's a choice. There's a choice. Either to know God's anger or to trust him. And in conclusion, the only refuge, this is from James Boyce, the only refuge from the wrath of God is in God's mercy unfolded at the cross of Christ. We're to take refuge in the King. So let me close in prayer. Dear Lord, Lord, you know every heart here today and every situation. And we come before you when we pray that you would be our refuge. That instead of rebelling as the nations have and as we naturally would do, we pray that you would transform our hearts, that you would, you would change us, that those who do not know you today and have a relationship with you through your son Jesus, that they would repent from their sin, turn to you and be saved today. Lord, for those who do know, know you, who, who have a relationship with you, we pray that they would still turn to you in submission. They would still turn from their sin. They would still, still confess their sin. That we would not develop pride, heart, proud hearts. That you would keep us soft. That you would keep us moldable to your ways. That we would be obedient to you. Thank you for your kindness to us. Pray that you might go before us and make us doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.